Hello, I'm Alice. I'm Dan. And today we'll be going over the first part of some of our theories of consciousness. So let's start out with what is consciousness in the first place? And that's a very good question and one that doesn't exactly have a definitive answer. Scientists and philosophers have been trying to figure out the answers to what is consciousness and why are we conscious basically since the first human even came about, before science and philosophy really even had names. Consciousness is basically our ability to understand what's going on around us and to think and feel freely, if you will. You're not a computer going, I have X input, so now I give Y response. I mean, sometimes I do feel that's how I, like, live, to be honest. I'm just like, oh, new stimulus? Ah, how do I react to this? But you do know that you're reacting to it, which is the main point. <laughs> yeah, but I usually have, like, a couple of predetermined ones, such as, oh no. That is fair, but I think you'll relate to this one as well. You're a complex mess of emotions and attachments, experiences, and memories, right? Ah, very true. The most dictionary definition is that you are aware of yourself and the world around you. So I would also like to add that, so I, I'm not super, super, like, experienced or, like, knowledgeable about consciousness, but I do know that there's a huge thing in it where it's the idea that I know I'm conscious, but I can never be completely sure that you do. Actually, extrapolating off of that, scientists basically have to go off of the understanding that not only are they conscious, but everyone else is conscious, but in addition to that, they also have to make the assumption that their experience of consciousness is the same as everyone else's experience of consciousness, which is a very gray topic. Yes. <gasps> That's why psychology is this way. <laughs> and what's even more confusing is trying to figure out how the heck we're conscious. The first theory that was put forward, or at least the first that we went over in my consciousness class, was the global neuronal workspace theory, which is a bloody mouthful to say. The definition is a little bit more of a mouthful and basically states that consciousness arises from multiple executive areas of the brain that communicate with each other. And unless you've recently taken a neuroscience class, you probably have no clue what that means. Sure don't. Which is why I am here and welcome to philosophy and neuroscience research. It is great. I love living here. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh, soft science. Ugh, and hard science. Fight me. Put them together and it's an absolute nightmare. <laughs> So let's break this nightmare down, starting with what are executive areas? Executive areas of the brain are large areas in charge of certain functions. These things are like emotions, movement, hearing, seeing, that sort of thing. To relate this to a topic you're probably listening to this podcast right now to explicitly avoid, let's compare these areas to CEOs of their regions and everybody in their little section as company employees who report to them. Bad news for communists. Oh, very. <laughs> and with this theory, consciousness becomes a thing where when multiple CEOs get together to discuss their information, kind of like the meeting of company heads, the psych department reports what they're seeing and the audio department might agree with something like, yeah, it sounds like you're passing a BMW and that was definitely the one that aggressively honked at you. Oof. Well, the head of your motor functions is probably trying to keep you from spazzing out and wrecking your car in panic for the loud noise the sound department just reported. Haha, <laughs> me. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> our moving and communication of our senses happen incredibly often. Obviously, I'm doing it all the time while I'm talking right now, as you are, Dan, as you're listening to me. <laughs> Yeehaw. And that's why we're basically usually always conscious while we're awake. 
me rolling a nat 20 on consciousness and becoming uncomfortably aware of reality and the fact that I have a physical form. I have bad news for you. I believe that is called anxiety. The collaborations between these executive systems, or brain CEOs, is what gives the global neuronal workspace theory its name. It is global because it involves the entirety of the brain. The world wide web of your brain. Precisely, actually. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! It's neuronal because the brain is made up of neurons, and that's what lets the different parts of the brain communicate with each other, so neuronal involving neurons. And lastly, workspace, because the brain is a space for these executive areas to communicate and synthesize or create a final product, which is consciousness. The evidence for the global neuronal workspace theory is mostly observational. I mean, that's what most things in psychology is, though. That is fair. However, firstly, these theories are actually based in cognitive science and neuroscience rather than simple psychology. Even on the terms of psychology, this has relatively weak evidence, mostly taken from other experiments that were used to support different theories that didn't have to do with consciousness necessarily. Ah, oh, sounds about right. Now, some of this evidence is that brains, particularly those in humans, will have neurons with long axons and dendrites that spread across a significant space of the brain. And just for some quick definitions, dendrites and axons are like a neuron's branches, which let them send and receive messages from other neurons. So those are all big words that I did know once, and I understood better with pictures that we unfortunately cannot portray here without a visual medium. Kind of think of it as the neuron is a little bubble, and from that bubble goes roots into a different direction. One roots are sending information, and the other roots are receiving information. And those roots connect to other neurons. Yeehaw! Scientists have also noticed a lot of triangular connections in the brain, which is basically just saying that there are three groups of neurons, or three parts of the brains, that are in heavy communication with each other and have a lot of these branches going to each other. So these are more prevalent in humans, which is what leads to the theory that when neurons are more interconnected with each other and there are more of these branches, something is more conscious. I mean, our brains are, like, huge in comparison to our bodies, so it wouldn't surprise me. Me either. <laughs> This evidence is all well and good at first, but there are a few issues with this theory. First, there isn't really any hard-hitting evidence, such as long axons don't necessarily mean consciousness. It could also just as well mean that it's more efficient not to pass signals from one side of the brain to the other via 20 other neurons. If I want to tell my friends something, I'll just text them. I won't tell my other friend who tells my other friends, and wait for the word to eventually get around to the person who I was intending to send the message to. You do if you want to be passive-aggressive. That is fair. <laughs> but looking at larger animals that do have those larger spans, even comparative to their body size versus our body size, it still doesn't make a heck ton of sense, necessarily. And the same goes with triangular connections. It could have to do with why human brains seem more evolved than other animals, and why humans can do things other animals can't, but it doesn't scream consciousness. It more screams efficiency. So while other animals could be conscious with not this many connections, we can have more connections and still be not just as conscious, just maybe more efficient at processing that good old anxiety. Haha! <laughs> it also doesn't take as many of our unconscious actions and thoughts into account. Everything from our gut feelings, which we aren't necessarily aware of, but can't necessarily reason out either, to breathing and keeping our hearts beating involves some level of neural communication but it's not like we're aware of exactly what's going on. 
Sure, we can be conscious of when we're breathing and blinking if we focus hard enough. Mm -hmm. You're welcome, everyone. (laughs) But we can't exactly say heartbeat at this BPM. If we could, that would make exercising so much easier for me. (laughs) It would also mean that I would immediately die, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Dan, no. (laughs) Don't even worry about it. It would be an accident. (laughs) Well, lastly, this theory doesn't really explain what it feels like to be conscious. It explains the why, but... Not the what. I mean, from the popularity of alcohol and such, I'm going to assume that the answer to what it feels like is that it feels bad. You're not wrong. (laughs) And that is up to uh, you as the viewers. Interpretation of that. Check your own brain. Does being conscious feel necessarily pleasant? The general consensus, I think, is bad. (laughs) You would be correct. (laughs) Haha! The one upside that the Global Neuronal Workspace Theory does have going for it is that it does take into account that animals have some levels of consciousness, given that their brains meet the qualifications laid out, just with those fewer triangular connections and long neurons compared to humans, which is why the GNW, or Global Neuronal Workspace Theory, says that they are slightly less conscious and have more limited experiences. Aw, my baby dog experiencing consciousness and barking at herself in the mirror. (laughs) Precisely. (laughs) Yes. The Global Neuronal Workspace Theory was unfortunately one of the easier theories to understand. We now move on to the Recurrent Processing Theory, which is thankfully much easier for me to say. Remember those executive brain areas? Those play a role in this one too. The recurrent processing theory states that consciousness arises from neurons in more executive areas communicating back with the lesser neurons. Ah, so authoritarianism. To be fair, at least this time, compared to the global neuronal workspace theory, the CEOs actually let these tiny neurons communicate back and forth with them. So, if anything, the global neuronal workspace theory is absolutely authoritarian, just with multiple authorities and the people have no say. Communistic authoritarianism. Precisely. (laughs) Again, that definition is a bit of a mouthful, so I'll return to this office analogy. Say you're an employee at the office where these brain CEOs work and you have to give them a report. Once that CEO has listened to your report and gives you feedback, maybe you're talking about tweaking the deadlines on a project or they want to change the budget, that conversation is what becomes consciousness. When you and your CEO are communicating back and forth with each other, consciousness results. The recurrent processing theory calls this process a feed-forward system. Only instead of just you and a CEO, you often have other neurons along the ranks of, say, entry-level employees, managers, and then directors, and then the CEOs. So there are a lot of levels to it. And when all of these levels are talking up and down the chain of command with each other, that's the feed-forward process leading to consciousness. So consciousness is basically a board meeting with way too many people who are all yelling. Which really does explain why our brains aren't as chaotic as they are. Yeah, it explains why I have a dumpster fire in my head. Don't we all? Haha. <laughs> Very true. Well, recurrent processing theory also approaches consciousness in four stages, sort of like a gradient. So with the feed-forward system, the higher up the communication goes, the more conscious of a thought it is. There have been a few experiments conducted by people who believe the evidence supports the recurrent processing theory. Two of the most well-known are the short-term memory test and a concept called blindsight. The experiment with short-term memory is something you likely do in everyday life. For anyone who drives to work, for example, how often can you really remember that car that was in front of you? Once it's out of your sight, you drove behind it for a while, saw its license plate, company logo, bumper stickers, color, and probably the model of the car, but 
how many of those things can you really recite even 10 seconds after it's gone? I mean, sometimes I drive on autopilot and suddenly I'm at my home and I'm like, what? How did I get here? But I didn't get into any accidents and nothing went wrong. So it's all good, man. Unfortunately, that is a very good example of short-term memory and love, get more sleep. Don't even worry about it. Now, these details weren't really the most important to your brain, similar to, say, your drive to your house, because it's something that you do so often. So, while you're absolutely positive that you have seen the car and everything about it, you haven't a clue what those things were. You know you drove home, who knows what those details were. Maybe you remember the color of the car and whether it was an SUV or sedan. I mean, bold of you to assume I could even identify those two aspects of car. This sort of information is what would be in the first or second stage of consciousness. Your senses pick up the information of, say, what car you're driving behind, and you might even be aware of some of the basic details, like the color and the make, but you won't remember them for more than just a moment. Me, when I look into a mirror, I'm like, ah, who's that? <laughs> Good job. Not so different from your dog after all, I see. I mean, the thing is, like, I can recognize it's me, but then I'm like, I turn away and I'm like, wow, I wonder what I look like. <laughs> If the car reminded you of a friend, however, or if the car had a particularly memorable bumper sticker, you are more liable to remember that information about the car because it has become of interest to other areas of the brain, specifically your memory and what it associates that with. Now, those executive areas of your brain are really talking with the smaller ones as you take interest in whatever caught your eye, which for me might be whenever I see an ace license plate and think of Dan. <laughs> So, now that we've gone over the short-term memory experiment, let's go over the blindside experiment, which actually works very similarly. Often in sight classes, the professor will introduce you to the topic of blindside by playing a video. You'd be instructed to count the number of times the players in white jerseys pass basketballs to each other and ignore the other players in black jerseys. People were so engrossed in counting, they didn't even notice the guy in a gorilla suit who casually walked on stage and started interacting with the players a little bit. I mean... To be honest, I'm a mess, so there's a good chance I wouldn't notice, like, even if I was just watching. I plead incompetence, Your Honor. <laughs> well, quite frankly, that is the same goal. I was not paying attention to the passes the first time either, and I still miss the gorilla. In the version my psych teacher showed us, most people knew what was going to happen and paid attention to the gorilla. They failed to notice, however, that the entire backdrop changed from one vivid color to another throughout the span of the video. And when things go from red to green, well, I mean, if you're not colorblind, it's a fairly obvious sight. <laughs> I did find a YouTube video with one of the original researchers, which I highly recommend watching for the entertainment value. If you've ever wanted to see a guy in a gorilla suit with a comically deep voice get miffed that people didn't even notice him waving in the video, this is your chance. It's linked and specially noted in the sources for this podcast on our Twitter. Amazing. Going back to the topic at hand, as for recurrent processing theory, this theory was partially created as a rebuttal to the global neuronal workspace theory. And as a side note, the saltiness and outright attacks of here's why the global neuronal workspace theory is wrong in some of the recurrent processing papers I read was absolutely hilarious to me. I mean, that's just what science is. You're like, ah, this is dumb. Here's my rebuttal. I made this specifically so I could fight you. That's like basically how the entire field of psychology was like founded, just on the absolute hatred of Sigmund Freud. Who I will gladly fight in a much later podcast episode. If you've ever been into more than one psychology class, 
you hate the guy. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you you should just, like, if you just look at him up, just be like, what the fuck? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Going back to consciousness, the recurrent processing theory definitely accounts for a better gradient from conscious to subconscious and unconscious in your mind, you know, with the whole breathing and heartbeat thing. It also better accounts for how animals are conscious and the gradient that they have on that. But again, it doesn't really answer what consciousness feels like at all. And the four stages of consciousness are only really theorized, so they're not proven in, in any way, and the evidence is really just corollary and not causational. This brings us to the end of our first part of the theories of consciousness. Since we finished our Middle Eastern creation story episodes last week, we'll be taking a week off from these stories, and we'll be back with European creation stories on October 8th. Haha, that's me. <laughs> we still want to give you an episode that week, though, so we will be releasing the second part of Theories of Consciousness next week. We'll be looking at the Integrated Information Theory and the Higher Order Theory. The former is probably the most difficult to conceptualize, and for reference, I already have a four-page outline dedicated to explaining it if that tells you anything, which is about as long as the script for this was. And the latter is a bit simpler to understand, especially in the context of knowing the former theories, including these two. So, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, y'all. <laughs>